Is that a strong enough clap? You can go again if you want. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. Cool. No, I know. You didn't like that one. Cool. So welcome to a new table, new episode, new guest. Very excited about this one because uh, this obviously is close to home. We are here with accredited psychotherapist and counselor Nigel Codman. Hi. Hi. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Um, so obviously at a new table, we talk about everything when it comes to having a sustainable life and you know from the inside out uh, so we've talked to farmers we've talked to um, people in fashion um, but also when we talk about living sustainably i think mental health is a really important aspect of that mm -hmm. so you're here today to chat about all things mental health okay yeah <laughs> you're saying this as if you're surprised as if we've not prepared um and so, so just to, um, obviously just to set the scene on where we're at, you uh, have a practice where you live in Natwich, but today we're in London, actually. Thank you for coming down it's with pleasure. your son. <laughs> and we're in these beautiful offices uh, called X and Y, uh, X and Y being our sponsor for this episode, who have graciously lent us also this venue. Um, a little bit about the company. They're a sustainable uh, B Corp certified uh, flexible workspace concept. They've got seven locations in London. They're really a great company and they're super impact driven. They work with professionals and companies that um, share the same values. And today we're in one of their newest locations. I'm not sure if it's been like kind of publicly shown yet, but it's at, um, we're, we're right by the Marble Arches. It's a beautiful location at one Cumberland place, uh, great Cumberland place. Anyway, so I think this is gonna be like a really great collaboration because they are like, they're all about mental health. Um, so yeah, anyways, thank you for joining us for this chat. It's a pleasure, it's a pleasure. So I usually like to um, sort of introduce our guests and to um, be able to give a sense to our audience um, their accreditations because obviously we like to have our experts be able to speak from their lens on what they um, what they feel is important for people to know about um, when it comes to like living more sustainably so walk me through a little bit about your career like tell us a little bit about your your professional path okay. why we should listen to you <laughs> I think it's quite complicated so I started in a corporate career, so I worked in HR, worked in industrial relations, um, did that for many years in some fairly big, well-known brands, I won't name them here, but car industry, aviation, financial services. Um, then went through a career change about seven, eight years ago, um, studied psychotherapy, now work in private practice, and I suppose that's quite good to have a range of perspectives because I have a lot of people come and see me now with mental health issues that have maybe been um, creating the workplace and so that kind of gives me an ability to see things I guess from from different angles um, 
I think in terms of people I see with, with mental health issues, it's quite hard to describe it because there's an absolute breadth. So people come along with issues that maybe they've had short-term experiences of. Sometimes it's been lifelong experiences of. Sometimes it can be around particular issues like relationships. It can be around work. It can be around family. It can be around anything, really. So it's a really, really rich tapestry, if you like, and absolutely fascinating um, and a really, really interesting subject. Um, and I suppose my real worry about mental health right now is it's a kind of battle I think we're losing. I what think do you mean? Well, I think we're, we're seeing more and more mental health issues. I think every year in the UK since 1993, we've seen the numbers go up and up and up. Um, and I think the way we're viewing mental health, I think we're trying to commoditize it. So we're sort of trying to simplify it, if you like. We're, yeah. we're saying to people who've got depression, here's a list of, of nine things, how many boxes can you tick? And there's a sort of an implication with that, that the more boxes you tick, the deeper your depression. And I'm not sure that's particularly true. Um, and then the way we're treating mental health is becoming more commoditized, isn't it? So we're, we're looking at six CBT sessions and thinking that that's going to cure a lifetime of depression. I'm not really sure that's um, particularly appropriate. And we're handing out more and more antidepressants. And whilst antidepressants, antidepressants do work for some people, they're not a long-term solution to a mental health problem. Mm -hmm. So I think we're seeing a lot of reoccurrence of mental health issues because we're not addressing the fundamental causes. I'm not surprised that you're saying that because, you know, like we were chatting earlier, I think, you know, on one end, it's like the topic of mental health, talking about mental health, what it, you know, how to understand mental health, I think is something a lot more common nowadays. I think there's definitely less taboos around that. It's definitely a little bit destigmatized, but at the same time, like, you know, this is like, what, two and a half, three years out of a, you know, worldwide pandemic. It's definitely, I think, had a lasting impact on the way that we live our lives. And I think we've seen a, a big correlation with how that's impacted our, I mean, general well-being, but also our mental health. Mm -hmm. And then, so on one end, it's like, we're in a, we live in a society that's a lot more comfortable talking or approaching these topics, but also at the same time, it's like, are we, are we approaching it the right way? I think there's a lot of noise that happens on social media and, you know, uh, you know, we've got these, um, like you said, self-help quizzes and things like that, checking boxes. Um, but at the same time, like there's experts in the field like you who are there to help people and to guide them into in the right way. And so, yeah, I don't know how like, I don't know if you've noticed a trend from how things were 10 years ago and the ease that you had working in this space versus now and how things are and how you've had to adjust and I think as we were saying when we talked earlier, I think it's easy to focus on the pandemic and say the pandemic changed a lot of things. I'm mm. not sure the pandemic really changed that much. I think what the pandemic did do is accelerated a lot of things. So, you know, we talked about that journey from, say, a cashless society. The pandemic accelerated that, didn't it? Perhaps things have happened 10 years earlier than perhaps they would have done ordinarily. I think it's the same with mental health. The trend was already here think the pandemic just accelerated it okay that's you interesting know? and I think the fact that we had you know quite a lot of people who were 
holed up maybe on their own for two, two and a half years has probably accelerated it much, much quicker. Um, but within that bubble that was created when people were in lockdown, social media then became more and more and more important, didn't it? So mm. people are talking about mental health a lot more on social media. I think you're right. There's definitely a trend where people are finding it easier to talk about mental health. We're definitely moving in the right direction. But again, as I said to you earlier when we were talking, people who come and talk to me and present, yeah, they are talking about their mental health, but they're not giving the full picture. Very, very few people I find sit down with a friend or with a loved one and say, here's the open book, this is everything about my mental health, these are the things I worry about, these are the things I'm scared about. They tend to they tend to share just aspects of their mental health, maybe the things that are more acceptable, but very, very few people I find in my experience throw the whole doors open and say, hey, this is me, these are the demons I battle. I think a lot of people still keep a lot of stuff to themselves. Mm. Um, and if I was to find one aspect of depression for people that I find most concerning is the loneliness. I think most people who are depressed are very, very lonely mm. because they either feel that they can't share or they're not able to share or they feel if they do share, people will view them differently or maybe even cut them off. Well, I mean, obviously people who are struggling feel very lonely um, you know, have a hard time connecting. And when you lose that sense of connection, you lose that sense of support. And I think support is a really big, important part of living a happy, healthy life. Um, but would you say at the same time also, being disconnected does breed depression, anxiety, sadness in people? I mean, like, you know, we talk about when we were in lockdown and you know, obviously social media became really important because it was one of our it was it was one of our only methods of staying connected to the rest of the world and to our loved ones. And so, you know, in a way, like that was really helpful. But I think being with yourself between four walls for people who didn't live in a, you know, in a kind of like family household, people who are living alone, um, then it's like you don't realize over time how that can impact you and on a day-to-day -day basis like it's it's almost like your surroundings can just as much feed into how you feel inside than like how you feel inside does feed into how you set up your surroundings right yeah and i think the way we live has changed enormously hasn't it if we go back I don't know, 50 years or so we had this thing about the nuclear family didn't we everybody living in you know 4.2 people living in a house Around a quarter of people these days live alone. Yeah. And that's been accelerated now by, you know, pandemic again, hasn't it? People working from home. If you live alone and then you work from home, some people can go days without actually having any proper interaction with anybody. So there's a large number of people in society who are very, very isolated, don't have that much human contact. Most of their contact with other people is through social media or through the phone mm. or through FaceTime or something like that. So for everybody that really loves working from home because it really works for them, you know, because of childcare or whatever, there's somebody else who actually feels massively excluded from society. So I get lots of clients who say, I'm forced to work from home, but I don't want to work from home. I want to work in the office because that's the only social interaction that I get. Right. That's your, I was going to say outlet, but that's your, um, that's your source of input of that social connection and 
Yeah, they only yeah. live conversations I've ever had with kind of work colleagues. Although, again, interestingly, lots of people then decide to make the journey into the office. But when they get there, there's nobody there. Yeah. <laughs> somebody else is working It's from very home. depressing. Yeah. Um, so I think it's just a big, big change in society and the way we, the way we live. We are very isolated. Mm. You know, we've become very antisocial. A lot of social interactions we used to have, like going into the bank or going into work, we don't do those things anymore. Mm. We don't even go to the stores, do we? It's so interesting that it's like when we say we're in, we're living in a society and a reality that, yeah, makes us collectively very antisocial. And it's almost like it's weird to think that because at the same time, like we're socially connecting all the time, every hour, either by texting or like WhatsApp or social media, Instagram, reading the news. It, we feel like we're interacting with the mm. world. But it's done in almost a, a little bit more inorganically. And I, I do think that that has an impact long term on people. And we're seeing that today, obviously. I think it comes back to the subject that's dear to your heart, doesn't it? Where we don't really live in our communities. We don't actually talk to the people we live next door to. We don't talk to the person in the local store. We don't talk to the person up the road we kind of connect with people on the other side of the world, don't we, who we don't really know. So we're having conversations on social media with people who are miles away, but we're not having a conversation with the person who lives downstairs. Mm. You know, we're completely disconnecting from our own environment, our own community, and having these sort of, dare I say it, slightly abstract relationships with people who we don't really know. Mm. I mean, and when we talk about the... So we talk about mental health, obviously like our environment is a very big factor of that. Mm -hmm. Our communities, our, um, our home environment, our work environment. I think the way also like we set up our lives because we were talking about mental health from a very holistic perspective, right? Like how we, um, the activities we engage in, right? The, um, you know, we talk about how exercise is so connected to mental health, nutrition and things like that. The kinds of, um, I want to say content or media, but the things we do expose ourselves to, it, it all, it all has an impact. Mm. And I think, I think then that becomes very difficult sometimes to almost pinpoint like what's the source that's causing, uh, that's causing us to struggle in our mental health because there's so many different aspects that could come into play. Um, I don't know if you get that a lot where people are just. I'm not doing well, I'm struggling, I, I don't know why. Because like everything on paper seems to go fine. And yet, not sleeping, have anxiety, I'm stressed. Yeah, I think people are a bit disconnected, aren't they, sometimes from our mental health. You're right, it, it's a direct consequence very often to the environment in which we live. Mm -hmm. um, and that can be you know, our loved ones, our family, our friends, our relationships, our work. Um, the kind of TV programs we watch, the computer games we play, the amount, you know, the, the, the content, the social media stuff we look at, that is the environment that we create around us and that clearly has an impact on our mental health. So if you look at the state of the nation's mental health, say in the 1950s, people lived very different lives then and they lived in a completely different environment, an environment that would be sort of unrecognisable today. But quite often I think people present with mental health issues but don't quite understand 
how much impact they can have on the environment mm. that they live in. You know, they can make choices around what TV programs they watch and the impact that those TV programs have on their mental health, how it makes them feel. Um, even their social interaction with friends and, 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 and family can have a massive impact upon how we feel. But quite often people don't realise that they can make those choices, mm. you know, spend less time with this person if they are a bit of a drag on how you feel versus spend more time with this person because they make you feel good and they boost your confidence in the same way that people continue to work in jobs that make them feel terrible because they don't feel that they can make the change but they kind of absolutely can and then you're right definitely the more time more time people tend to spend out and about in nature their mental health does seem to be better mm. but people don't always make that connection do you feel like where um our biggest problem is we don't even realize that we're operating on autopilot sometimes Partly that, and I think we forget how much we people please. You know, okay, think, what do you mean? Well, sometimes somebody that doesn't make you feel great says, do you want to come for a coffee? And so we go for that coffee because we don't want to upset them, but we discount the fact that it's not going to make us feel great. Mm. So, you know, we don't we don't say no very easily in this society, do we? Because we think it's really, really offensive. So we just say yes to everything. Right. And it's like at the expense of what? It's expensive our own mental health, isn't it? Mm. I like that you talk about how to some level we do have a choice or, you know, a level of agency in our lives. I think one of the one of the the I think one of the most important things about these chats that we try to have here is um, you know, how people can walk away with some real tangible, practical tips on how to just like improve how they operate and go through life and it's a little bit difficult I find sometimes having this talk when we talk about mental health we talk about people struggling it's not to discount the um, unfortunate circumstances that we can sometimes go through that are out of our control you know I hate to use that word victim but mm. we we are all victims sometimes of unfortunate events and circumstances that cause us to like lose our balance and that sucks but I think to like put things back in perspective there's always going to everybody is always struggling everyone goes through challenges there's always somebody that's going to be struggling a little bit more than you there's al always somebody who's going to be struggling a little bit less wherever you you stand you know on the scale of like or the social ladder or success ladder um what's important to remember is while it doesn't discount these things that are very unfortunate that can be out of our control there is a level of there is a level of agency we do have up to a certain extent on how we can how we would choose to navigate then how how we would navigate through these situations um and we can choose to do it in a way that's a little bit kinder and a little bit more proactive and a little bit more productive so it's I think when we talk about how we can choose to help our mental health, it's not coming from a place of blaming people who haven't been doing it to the best of their ability, but it's just like a nice reminder that you can be empowered um, to some level into, into your happiness, right? Yeah, I think everybody has choices, don't they? Um, and socioeconomic circumstances can mean some people have got more choices than, than other people. Mm. Um, 
What I see a great deal of is when people very often are struggling with their mental health, they develop some really good habits. So they do things like they drink a lot more water, they might eat better, they might eat more fruit and vegetables and things, they might go for walks, they might join the gym. Um, people the, struggling with their mental health yeah, but, we'll, but are we'll, doing something about but it. But they will develop yeah. really good habits mm. and that's great and they get a whole lot better but then sort of human nature kicks in and when they feel better they stop doing some of that stuff mm. you know and then they'll represent and say oh I'm undepressed again and then they they reach back for those good habits that they had developed <coughs> excuse me that they, they then they then stopped doing so I think there's a definitely a message there that when you develop good habits when you feel better you need to keep doing the good things because actually that's what will sustain your mental health right even if you don't realize everything does have some sort of an impact, if it's if it's feeding your soul, if it's feeding your body really well, I mean, good sleep, nutrition, like you said, exercise, enjoying nature a little bit, being surrounding ourselves with uh, in in good moments, with good relationships, socializing, connecting. These are all things that mm. directly or indirectly are helping us. It's that stuff we talked about a lot. You know, it's about sustainability, isn't it? You get a lot of people who get mental health issues, say, related with work, and then they take some time out, and then they feel heaps better. But then they just go back to work and behave exactly how they did prior to taking some time out. Right. And it's no surprise that they end up right back where they were mm -hmm. at the beginning. Depressed all over again. Yeah, <laughs> because they haven't sustained the changes. So when you start to address your mental health problems, whatever... in whatever interactions you put in place, you have to sustain them. Mm. You can't just drift back to where you were because you'll just get the same result all over again. I feel like when you say that, I'm just thinking about how a big key to that is is having a real awareness, like being really clued in to all of the things that factor in our, our mental health. You know, I think like going back on this whole like, do we operate as a society on autopilot and we don't even realize it? How often are we not even connecting the dots where we are there saying, oh, I'm in a, my relationship isn't very good. I'm in a job that I dislike. I'm not eating great. And I'm also depressed. I don't know why. You know, and it's like we're not, we're not connecting the dots. We're not actually making a real inventory of our lives and assessing, okay, there's a lot of things right now that aren't going great. This might actually have an impact as to like why I'm feeling so poorly or why I'm feeling so demotivated or, mm. right? Yeah, I think but as, an, as, a, as a species, we have this natural bent towards we put up with things don't we 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 have inaction you know we we all observe this not just me but we all observe people who are in really lousy toxic relationships mm. but they don't escape the relationship they hang in there because there's something about maybe people will change or maybe things will get better people work a, a terrible job have a terrible boss but they still hang in there they tell everybody how awful it is but they don't do anything about it and so I think all across our lives, sometimes we kind of have a lot of clues about what's going on. We're just not listening. Yeah, but we, we're prone to inaction, aren't we? We're really Don't good at giving to. other people advice, you know, as you and I both do. But we're not always very good at taking that advice. So it's 
great for the people to change, but we're not very good at addressing the core issues in our lives. Yeah. We kind of hope against hope that they're going to get better. I think for me, what I've, you know, and, and I know in our like many chats, I've referenced um, Andrew Huberman a lot, Dr. Andrew Huberman mm. and his podcast. And for me, when I've been going on, so obviously like I think mental health has been like a huge part of what I care about for a long time. Um, and I've addressed my own at different phases in different ways. And what I found really interesting in the last couple of years, especially the last few years, is also in, in parallel of addressing it with, you know, talk therapy and things like that, looking at understanding myself and my brain from like just a neurological perspective, like real objective science. Our brains are wired to borrow the path, the path of least resistance, our brains are lazy. So to remind ourselves, okay, like this is the default formula. And so if I'm in a, if I'm in a environment or I'm in a, like a, doing a job that I loathe or that's not bringing me a lot of purpose, um, and the idea of changing over to something that might be a little bit um, more purposeful and more motivating, it feels that feels really difficult and it's probably because it's it's unfamiliar we almost are more comfortable to exist in something that's familiar even if it's not good rather than jump into the unknown towards something that might have the potential to bring a little bit more value to our lives so i don't know i guess like would you say in terms of like mental health it's a little bit like like going to the gym and developing that discipline, that good habit, it's always really difficult in the beginning to almost like reroute and rewire our thinking. But then at some point, new habits kick in and that mm -hmm. becomes the new familiar. And it's almost like once you're like you're on a roll, it's easier to keep going. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I think, I think there's a massive disconnect, isn't there, between how we present the way that we think and the kind of thoughts we have in our heads in terms of how we present that to the wider world versus what's really going on inside mm. so we've got this concept haven't we of normal um, and we all like to comply with that I think to a certain extent um, and the reality is is you know each of us inside have some absolutely crazy thoughts don't we we do it all the time you know we have those thoughts about well, what if I did that or what if I did the other but we don't really share those very much because everybody else around us would think we were crazy. But that's actually not true because everybody else is having those thoughts. You know, it's like if you put if you put 100 people in a room and say to them, so who talks to themselves? It takes one brave soul to say, yeah, I do. And then the other 99 people put their hands up and go, yeah, so do I. <laughs> but at that first point where you ask the question, everybody's like sitting on their hands, aren't they? Because they don't want to be the first person to admit it. Mm. So I think there's something about us being more open and honest about what our brain functions are like and how we think and how we feel. But I think we spend an awful lot of time trying to present ourselves as conforming to how we think we should be than actually how we really are. Mm. So there's a lot more going on in here about our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with the world, than we really let on. Well, you said something 
right there, our relationship with ourselves. I mean, it's very, we talk about like social stigma around mental health and obviously the fear of being judged by others, mm. but really would you say that we are also hugely judgmental of ourselves? Yeah, I think we scrutinize ourselves in a way that is much deeper than anybody else scrutinizes us, don't we? We, mm. um, in social conversations, if if somebody else makes a, a simple mistake, you know, they use the wrong word, we just laugh it off, don't we? We don't stigmatize them for doing it, it's just what happens, isn't it? It's easy. But when we do that, we really beat ourselves up afterwards, don't we? And we kind of think everybody else has judged us and we're going to think they think ill of us or they think we're you know, illiterate or whatever, I don't know. But we're much tougher on our own mistakes and quite forgiving of other people's mistakes. So we think other people scrutinize us far more than they actually do. But then equally we scrutinize ourselves far, far more than we scrutinize anybody else. Mm-hmm. It's just the way of being, I think. In what you've seen in your practice, because I mean, I mean, you've been addressing mental health, like you said, at like a corporate level, but now obviously, and at a public level, um, but obviously now in like your one-on-one counseling that you do. What do you think is the um, thing that holds people back sometimes for not just um, not just affecting changes in their lives that could help them, but even just like approaching that topic with themselves in the first place? I think firstly, I think once you once you wear a mask for a very, very long time, you almost start to believe your own bullshit, if you like, don't you? So mm-hmm. you, you've presented yourself in a particular way, you've convinced everybody else around you that you don't have any mental health issues, you've convinced everybody else around you that you're fine. Having done that for quite an extended period of time, it's quite a big climb down, isn't it, to say, hi guys, this has all just been a bit fake actually I'm not okay I'm not all right actually I worry about this or I'm concerned about that you're not just presenting how you feel but you're actually presenting a major change aren't you in terms of what you've already put out there so I think that can be really really difficult to do and I think there's part of us that maybe buys into that I think we believe that we are okay and actually to admit it and to publicly say actually I do struggle with this or I do wrestle with that actually doesn't just change your relationship with the wider world but maybe it changes your relationship with yourself right it's like um i know with some people that i've had this i've had chats with sometimes over the years um it's almost like um people are afraid to like open their own cans of worms by being like okay well if i if i go down that path and like i don't know what's what's down there and it's almost like this fear that then one addressing one challenge means I'll probably have to address the 10 other ones that I've been suppressing. (laughs) And that's not a battle that, uh, you know, some people are just prepared to tackle, right? Yeah, and lots of people present for therapy. They'll come and talk, but they don't really say what's wrong. They just pleasantly talk for an hour and then maybe come along three times. And then usually, I don't know, five minutes from the end of the third session they'll suddenly blurt out what's wrong mm. so it's taken them best part of three hours to get to actually saying that there is something they want to talk about but they usually say it right at the end of a session because they want to get out through the door pretty damn quickly after they've said what's wrong so I think people find it 
really, really are to open up. I like the idea of talking a little bit a little bit about the therapy process because mm. you know one could be very familiar with it. I'm sure many people right now have this idea of what it could be like from what you see in TV shows or in movies or you know where it's like a very sterile environment and somebody's lying on the couch talking um, and, or there's a whole bunch of paint splatter drawings that make no sense and it just you know we're like super Freudian um, approach to understanding ourselves um, but so you so you talk about talk therapy that's mainly I guess how we would say that you the services you offer to people right yeah person-centered therapy yeah and so what so what's that process like for somebody who let's say would be interested in that what's the what's the what's the experience like what's the what is really the therapist patient relationship like what's that dynamic like I think as much as possible to try and have a really balanced relationship so there's no sort of power dynamic in the room I think for the person that shows up they have a lot of control or they have all the control they talk about what they want to talk about if they don't want to talk about something, we'll don't talk about it. So it's it's for them to go on an exploratory journey, if you like, about learning to share, learning to talk, but them setting the parameters in terms of what they want to talk about, but perhaps just as importantly, what they don't want to talk about. I think them feeling that they're not being judged, feel like there's somebody that's on their side and that understands. And I think the important thing for the therapist is people talk about empathy quite a lot in society and I don't think we always quite mean empathy when we talk about that it's about trying to see something and see things from the other person's perspective so it's when somebody talks about something it doesn't really matter what I think about that it's about being being able to see that from their perspective and how it feels for them mm. because obviously it's about their unique experiences so I think in terms of seeing a therapist from the from the client's perspective it should be really empowering you know, it's their time, it's their place, and it should feel safe. You know, they shouldn't feel like they need to talk about anything that they don't want to talk about. Right, and I mean, when you say that we're in a society where we don't realize to the to what it to how much of an extent we people please, it's probably really important to have these moments of times where we have this like safe place to just. It's all about me and what I want to talk about, what I want to get off my chest. Um, mm. As the professional in the room, what's your what's your role though in that conversation? Like, you know, is it is it about guiding the conversation in a certain way? Do you is it just passive listening? Is it advice? Like what's the what's that like? I think it can vary from the individual to individual. I think as much as this is to encourage, I think it's to make people feel that whatever they're saying is okay. There's, there's, you know, people often say, "Am I crazy?" And you kind of got to dispel that very, very quickly. Um, I think it's about creating a safe space. And I think for a lot of people, the feedback I get from clients tends to be the thing that they find most positive is just being heard. Mm. It's amazing across society how people just don't feel heard. Wow. No one actually listens to them or is prepared to hear what they've really got to say. Because I think sometimes people feel like. They're screaming for help, 
but nobody actually picks it up nobody hears it maybe they're only hinting maybe they don't hint well enough people are very often struggling in society and looking for help but they're not really getting any mm. I think um, I think being heard can result in feeling um, acknowledged you know validated doesn't you don't somebody doesn't necessarily have to agree or relate to what somebody's going through but just knowing somebody's like witnessing them and acknowledging their struggle I think can can go a long way yeah because quite often I think people say they talk to friends or they talk to family and they might say something like I'm really really suffering with anxiety and rather than that family member saying to them okay so tell me more they tend to reply with oh well I get that too so it almost becomes a competitive environment as to whose anxiety is greater mm. rather than somebody feeling heard and validated around having somebody who's really prepared to listen to maybe the underlying causes of their anxiety or how they experience the anxiety right for so no I get that because I mean it's it's very hard let's say as a as a as a person with your own experiences you have your own biases if you will um, it's hard to really not overstep not compare not judge and not try to inject yourselves in that person's um, sharing of their experience I mean I've, I'm thinking about how uh, you know when people lose a loved one and they go through that grief and you know it's talked about a lot how like the worst thing that you could say to someone when you offer them your condolence your condolences is to say oh you know what like i i've been through it too and like i get where uh, i i i know exactly what you're going through or i've experienced the same thing and it's not to again i'm not trying to poo-poo on the good intention you're trying to create a moment of of connection and to see oh you're not alone like I'm here for you but it then unfortunately translates in I'm discounting your experience as being completely unique and then that can feel very discouraging to someone because at the end of the day we all go through the same stuff at the end of the day we all experience grief we're all going to lose loved ones we all go through heartbreaks we're all possibly going to experience unhappiness in work or you know um, fail at things sure but everyone can I don't know is entitled to feel like their experience can be acknowledged as unique even if it mm. can be relatable does that make sense yeah that's completely right isn't it whether it's anxiety whether it's depression menopause um, bereavement the titles are the same in terms of what we're going through but the way people experience that is vastly different you know when people go through bereavements for example the feelings are completely unique to the individual and how they how they feel it how they deal with it is entirely unique and you're right People can quite be quite clumsy, can't they, around bereavement. This is sort of a whole thing about wanting to make people feel better or say the right thing. But none of that really helps, really, does it? You've got to leave an individual to move through a bereavement process in the way that's right for them. And I think there's this whole collision between 
how society views bereavement and how individuals view bereavement. Society seems to have this view that bereavement's one of those things that will just get over it in three months. The reality is a lot of bereavements take three, four years, even a lifetime sometimes for people to move through. Mm. And there's not really the right level of empathy from society that understands just what a raw experience bereavement can be. And yeah, you get people making quite inappropriate comments. It's almost trying to cheer people up when they're going through, plunging through the depths of bereavement. It's quite insensitive in a way. Mm. But none of us, you know, me, you or anybody can really understand how somebody else experiences something because we genuinely don't know. Right, yeah. and How could we? Everybody needs... So everybody responds to different things. Everybody needs different things. You know, some people need space. And like you said, just listening, you know, going for a walk around the block, walk it off, (laughs) doesn't necessarily work for everyone, right? And at any point in time when we experience something, we bring our previous experiences with us, and those experiences are completely unique. So what might trigger somebody into anxiety is completely different for somebody else because we all have our own spin, don't we, from our experiences previously that might have an impact on how we experience something now. Mm. I like how you said before that, you know, it's a a sort of a common pattern of your uh, clients, people that you do um, have sessions with, and most of them all say at some point, like, am I crazy? And I think that this is this is so interesting because we talk about mental health and we equate it to if you have mental health issues or challenges, you are mentally disturbed or you're crazy or you're not a functional human being. And I think it, it's kind of like it, it can be very black and white, but just just for this, the sake of the conversation, mental health, it it exists on such a spectrum right? You can have long-term challenges. Sometimes some can be just circumstantial. Yeah, but I think when people say that, am I crazy? I think they're, they're feeling like they're, they're looking for validation, aren't they? It's like, am I massively different to everybody else? Yeah. Um, am I, you know, am I the same as everybody else or am I massively different? They're kind of trying to get a feel for that. And I could say, almost that contradiction, almost everybody that comes to see me, I could say, well, you're just in the range with everybody else. You know, you're not a standout. You're just like everybody else. You're just like me almost. Because as I said earlier, we all have these random thoughts that, that kind of fly around in our heads. And we don't really share those with people, do we? But we all have them. Um, but sometimes we feel like we're the only one. You know, so I think a lot of clients will say to me, sometimes irrationally I have suicidal thoughts. But that's really, really common. But I don't think other people quite realise that that having suicidal thoughts is pretty common across the whole population. Mm. Most people kind of have them randomly from time to time. But some people will present and say they're really, really concerned about it. But they're only having one thought once a month. Well, that's probably on par with most of the general population. But they're really concerned about it because they think they're a standout, and actually they're not. It's not to say that, obviously, not to like dilute the importance of still addressing it. But, you know, I think like you said, it's just to say, everybody's a little crazy, right? There's no, there's no shame in going through hard times, kind of spinning out of control sometimes. It's not, 
it's not out of the norm in the sense not to like discount the uniqueness of your experience but just to say it's okay it's gonna it can it can definitely get better it i mean right like a, uh, most people will go through hard times in their lives mm. some may be worse some less than you there's a light at the end of the tunnel but I think there's a mismatch, isn't there, between how society views itself, so how we like to view, view the world that we live in, if you like, versus the reality of what the world is actually like. So I think, you know, for a lot of people, there's no concept that at any point in time, maybe around one in five people has got a mental health issue going on, is actually getting treatment for it. There's no real concept in wider society that what around a quarter of women between about 16 and 24 are self-harming on a sort of daily basis we don't see society like that we kind of it doesn't feel good does it to see those sorts of statistics so i think we think that the mental health of the country is way better than it actually is and we leave the people with the mental health issues to deal with it themselves mm. and then it's quite natural for them to feel like well am i the only one am i unique because we don't really spread the propaganda, do we, that this is a much bigger problem than it is because maybe on a societal level that would tell us that we've got a much bigger problem than we actually have. And maybe we, you know, the way society functions probably does need to change. But does society really want to do that? It probably doesn't. So we'll kind of create this as a minority issue rather than it being a much, much bigger issue than it actually is. So what qualifies as, let's say, a mental health issue? what what are things that maybe i don't know like people are going through that they might think are normal or things people are repressing or trying to ignore it's not just either being sane or insane right like, <laughs> um it's a really really wide spectrum isn't it there's a is it diagnostic and statistical manual that defines all the mental health conditions um in society you know and it's it's kind of pretty thick um I think, as we talked earlier, mental issues can be, for some people, they can be conditions that they're born with, things like autism, and they're going to be lifelong struggles. People who are born with learning difficulties, and, and they're going to have aspects of mental health issues that will prevail throughout their lives. It's a daily struggle for those people. Right across the spectrum to some people who might have an occurrence of anxiety for a particular point in their lives, and it arrives at a particular date, and it disappears, and it doesn't return. Some people can have anxiety issues around a specific event in a particular aspect of their day. You know, the journey to work, for example, can cause huge anxiety. But once that journey's over, anxiety disappears for the rest of their lives. So it is the whole spectrum from a daily battle to, you know, a particular short period of time in your life. Mm. Um, and the types of conditions it can include is immeasurable, isn't it? What, have you seen a trend or a shift um, from the types of mental health challenges or struggles that people have gone or were more commonly going through, let's say 10 years ago, than the stuff that you're now seeing? Or would you say it's like relatively the same? It's more about people being more open about it. I think far and away what I see, the biggest single issue is anxiety. So we are a very anxious society and anxiety seems to be very prevalent in young people. So anxiety is probably the single biggest issue. Young people, how old is that? Anything from 13 upwards. 
13 upwards. Yeah, so anxiety is a significant issue in society. Um, and it feels that, um, that feels like a condition for a lot of people that they're probably going to battle with for most of their lives. What do you think causes that anxiety in young people so much nowadays? I think very competitive peer pressure. I think social media. Um, even when you look at things like bullying, for example, if you go back 30 years, bullying was one of those things that could start at nine o'clock in the morning and end at three o'clock in the afternoon and, and only take place Monday to Friday in term time. Right, at school. Yeah. yeah. And in, in the social media age now, bullying is a 24-7 thing. Mm. You know, so it's a much, much bigger issue. I think bullying is a much bigger issue than, than perhaps we, um, we realise. Um, I think people just feel under a lot of pressure to be a particular way. You know, we're defining what good looks like through social media and then people are constantly looking at whether they measure up to that or not. So I think the pressure of being a young person now is is off the scale to perhaps what previous generations had to put up with. Mm. How, um, what are ways to counter that? I mean, obviously I know that, or I understand that you are there to assist to manage that in people who are experiencing anxiety, young people experiencing anxiety, but how, what are ways that, let's say, we can almost try to counter it or avoid it or, you know? Start to have conversations with people about their relationship with their self. It's about accepting who you are, what you look like, how you behave, how you feel, rather than trying to present as something that you're not. So I think it's about people being genuine about who they are, accepting who they are, and stop searching to be something that they're not. That's the long-term um, solution for most people, I think. But being able to actually bring that about, I think, is a really, really tough process. Because whilst you can have a conversation with somebody about them being more comfortable with who they are, there's this constant pressure, isn't there, from, from peer groups and from social media about you need to be more like this or you need to be more like that. But there's a sort of, um, there's a real disconnect, isn't there, between how people present on social media versus how they actually are. You know, I always say to people, don't forget you compare how you actually are with somebody else's fantasy that they present on social media. Because don't forget, those people who present like that aren't actually like that in reality. That's just what they're projecting. Yeah, everybody posts their highlight reels. Of course they the do. They project the sort of champagne lifestyle out there. But actually, their lives are as dreary and boring as ours are in reality. But we don't get to make that comparison. We just see our own lives as quite dull and see everybody else's lives as exciting. So from what ages do you... Um you know, do you start seeing people, um, you know, would you say that like young people, I know teens, the teenage experience is hard. I can't imagine what it's like to go through today as a teen. Um, would you say that young people have an, have an ease at reaching out for mental health support? Or is it like, is it the parents that, that reach out? What's the... It tends to be the parents reach out um, parents tend to be very, very concerned. You know, usually something's come to light. So it tends to be a start with a parental referral, in my experience. Um, 
from a young person's perspective, um, that's probably the word, they don't have a lot of perspective. So they, they get drawn into this patterns of behaviour with young people in terms of, you know, a lot of pressure to do this or pressure to do that. And they don't really know any different. So this sort of fabricated world that they get drawn into feels absolutely real. Mm. Um, and, you know, the concept of pulling back from social media and maybe not listening to certain things or watching particular things is it's such a cornerstone of their world that it's almost impossible for them to draw back from it. Right. You know, it, probably saying to a, to, a, to a child right now, don't watch social media would have been the equivalent in the 1980s of saying you can't watch any more TV. It would have just been inconceivable. Or just stop talking to people. I mean, yeah, it's just, it's not really, just it's not realistic. Yeah, it's just off the scale. So then it's like, how, then it becomes, how do we fortify and strengthen our sense of self, our character, or, um, I know we use that word a lot in uh, therapy, but like, how do we develop tools to help us manage things better? I guess that then that becomes the objective, right? Yeah, I, th I think some of it's aligning with reality. You know, one of the key um, correlations I always think with mental health is mental health and sleep. How good your sleep pattern is tends to dictate to a large extent what your mental health condition is like. Um, I don't have any kind of backup data for this but from my experience of working with young people is is young people don't sleep young people hide under the covers playing on their phones all night either watching TikTok or talking to their friends parents are largely unaware of that but kids don't sleep right now you know they're up all hours of the night playing games or interacting on their phones and stuff and so it's not surprising that their mental health isn't great but we ain't going to get to any kind of solution there until we actually get back into you know, some real basics that people do need to sleep, we do need to regenerate overnight, we do need to get some rest. But that's increasingly happening with adults as well, isn't it? Yeah, it's hard to like tackle how do we how do we strengthen our mental health? How do I start feeling better inside when I'm like exhausted and tired? <laughs> it's like I don't have the bandwidth for that if I'm operating on no sleep. But just so I can understand, is it that struggling with your mental health affects your sleep or is it that not sleeping enough can have an impact on mental health or like I guess it's either or right I think it's multifaceted isn't it I think some people don't sleep because they're anxious and they don't really feel like sleeping I think other people just get drawn into the conversations and so they're playing alone all night and talking or whatever or like doom scrolling just mindless and then you don't realize oh my god three hours have passed by so quite what the causes are they're probably quite complex the reality is we've got a whole generation of people who ain't sleeping too good. Mm. But that applies to adults too. You know, I don't meet many adults who I say to them, what's your sleep like? And they say, oh yeah, I get a sound eight hours every night. That is a real rarity. Mm. So then is that, I'm just trying to think like for, for people at home who are, who are like uh, starting to grasp like, okay, men mental health awareness, you know, and what is that, how that can play into my life and my reality, that's something to consider. Um, if somebody's not sure that they're struggling with mental health, like what are the key things that they could look for? Like, okay, I guess like clocking, if they're not sleeping, that could be a, a, a sign? Yeah, I think how well they sleep. It's also important to remember about sleep. Sleep's only really good for us if we get it in one bout so we need to sleep through for six or seven hours in one go 
sleeping for a couple of hours, waking up, going back to sleep again for a couple of hours, that's not taking through the proper cycles of sleep. So it kind of needs to be in a big chunk, if you like. I think that's really important. I think our diet's really important. You know, how are we eating? Are we sitting down and relaxing and eating? Are we grabbing something on the move? Um, content of what we're eating. So how wide is our diet? Is it quite narrow? Are we eating the same sort of things? Obviously, differences between sort of Western diet and Mediterranean diet, I think, are quite important. Um, concentration. If we're able to concentrate and we're able to remember things, mm. that tends to tell us that our mental health is quite good. When our mental health starts to suffer, we get quite forgetful. We can't remember people's names. We can't remember where we put things. So the simple mental tasks suddenly become much, much more difficult. It kind of feels busy. It feels a bit foggy up there. I think that's quite important. Um, an ability to concentrate. If you can watch a TV programme or you can read something, people with mental health issues really struggle to do that. And it's like, okay, so... And it's more than just distraction, or it is to be easily distracted. Yeah, easily distracted. Okay. And then I think people with mental health issues often describe they fly off the handle quite easily. So they get irritable quite quickly or they get angry quite quickly. Mm. Um, so they sort of lose that calmness. So they're the typical traits, I would say, for most people with mental health issues that I, right. would, I would think about. And then probably the last one would be how sociable we are. People with mental health issues tend to be, they cancel nights out, they tend to cancel social visits, they don't like to be in social circles, they tend to start to hibernate, they kind of, we talk about loneliness, but they often create the loneliness, mm. so they stop interacting with people. Like you, almost like avoiding, avoiding, avoiding interacting or being in situations that are going to remind you that like you're not, you're not connecting you're not able to be happy you're not enjoying yourself so we subconsciously feel like we don't have a great story to tell so rather than put ourselves in that situation where we have to tell the story we tend to start to hide a little bit mm. for I mean obviously the best case scenario is when somebody is struggling with their mental health and they're aware of it they're picking up on it and they want to do something about it they reach out for support in whatever form that takes and then they move into, you know, the, the steps to recover and regenerate, like you said. But how often does it happen where, let's say, it's your friends or family that will be concerned and that will reach out for additional support? You know, I don't know if there's, like, such a thing as, like, intervention I feel I'm thinking like for a drug intervention but is there like such a thing as like mental health interventions or how or like how do people have that conversation if they're noticing their loved ones are kind of not doing well their behavior is changing but it's like how do you approach that how do you do that well I think there are probably two main avenues and one's something I'm I can relate to because it happens the other one is, is something I can't relate to but I'm, I'm aware of it I think GPs general practitioners in the UK see an awful lot of people with mental health issues and what they would say is, is that the majority of those people present with physical symptoms so they'll come to the doctor and they'll say something like I'm not sleeping yeah. or I'm not eating properly or I'm forgetful but they'll describe something that they consider to be a, a physical problem mm -hmm. or physical concern and the GP will pick that up as a mental issue 
but they won't present with a mental issue. They will present with a physical symptom. Interesting. So I think that's quite interesting in itself. I think for people like me in, in, in therapy, um, people need to self-present. So you can't present somebody else. So you might get a call from a, from a lady that says, my husband needs some help. Right. Can I refer him to you for help? Right. My response to that would always be, yeah, absolutely, I want to help, but he needs to call me, he needs to come and see me, and he needs to make it clear that he's happy to be helped. You can't refer on his behalf because you're not really going to build a therapeutic relationship with somebody who doesn't want to be there. Right. It has to feel consensual. Yeah. <laughs> and 100%. I guess you, you know, change happens when you want change yourself right what uh, would you say or you're, or you're ready to talk about it you know it's the same with things like alcoholism isn't it you can't really present for help right. until you admit there's a problem that's interesting that you say that because i mean you know we talk about or i've been talking a lot about how, how people who don't know they're realizing they're struggling but what if they do and they actually just don't feel ready to you know like it's the kind of worms thing like you know there's kind of an issue but it's almost like if I just keep ignoring it maybe it can go away like how do you how do you have that conversation with people who who just feel like if they ever take that step it's just everything's going to come crashing down I don't think you can direct somebody to that I think you can just have the conversation with them you know so it's like very often what people talk about is the consequences so they might talk about I'm using drink too much, or I'm using recreational drugs too much, or I'm getting angry all the time, or or whatever. But they're the consequences of the mental health issues that they're flying around. Mm. But they're happier to talk about how they're dealing with something. So it's the consequences of them not feeling great, of them having very low self-esteem, or wherever it is going on inside. But you can't pinpoint that for them. I think it's about they've got to be able to talk about the thing in the round, if you like. And ultimately, they've got to start to discover that for themselves. Mm. You can't pinpoint them to the answer. How is it as a therapist where you're sitting there? I guess like it's a very careful dance in a way, right? Where you, you're, you're, you're there, you're the expert to, to help. But I guess there's only so much you can really do. You have to... I don't know, I guess, like, trust and respect that your patient is going to, or the person that you're speaking to, is going to be able to, I don't know, figure it out from themselves or, like, find the answers. Like, must, that must be hard, no, to, like, draw, keep, uh, draw that line in the sand and, like, just keep behind it because I'm sure you do care about yeah, the well-being of your pe People patients. make their own decisions, don't they? People have their own perspectives, and clearly I still have, you know, my views or opinions which I would keep to myself but you know you do see clients that have very difficult situations and they identify those situations and you know they share some really really awful experiences with you but ultimately they decide not to make those changes you know so they could be in very abusive relationships but despite that they still deeply love the partner and they're not prepared to leave the relationship but that means that they are prepared in some way to carry on taking the abuse and, and we can talk through that but ultimately it's their decision they decide what they want to do um, and privately I might think that 
they shouldn't continue with the relationship but if that's what they choose to do then that's what they do isn't it I don't control anybody in the therapeutic relationship they're in control and they make their own decisions so how would you in your words describe your role like what is it at the end of the day that like you know even in in the times where you can't necessarily control the outcome like what's how do you feel how do you feel how would you word your purpose if you will in that experience in that relationship create a safe environment be somebody who's prepared to listen give people an environment where they can be really really frank and honest and not feel judged um, I think enable people to get some perspective in terms of what's happening and then create an environment where people can explore options and possibilities because that has to come from them they have to be able to work out something that perhaps in the first session is wholly unthinkable by perhaps by the fifth or sixth session is something that's a real possibility mm. as they gather confidence around well maybe I could do that or maybe I could do the other so I think it's just been that catalyst to allow people to explore in this kind of safe environment where anything's possible mm. and you can maybe be a version of you that you can't be in wider society because you don't feel judged or you don't feel that you've said anything wrong so for those who are um, maybe considering uh, seeking counseling or seeking some sort of a talk therapy, what's like? What's the process like? Is it very involved? Like, is it just a f easy phone call? I think sometimes the first step is always the the scariest one or the one that feels like the biggest deal. Yeah, I think it's much simpler than people think. It is literally pick the phone up. Um, arrange a session, come along. I think I always say to people before sessions, don't overthink it. Um, I think people often feel like they have to be very chronological, you know, tell it in the order that it is, whereas I always say to people, just blurt it out, just get it off right. your chest, just let it come out wherever it comes out. Um, so there's no, like, homework or preparedness no, there's to... There's no homework, no. <laughs> I mean, there are some forms of therapy that do give homework, and people tend to be quite negative about that. Um, some people I think will turn up to a first session and it's just this massive release and they just let everything go and you can see that they just feel great because there's this stuff that's been building up for years and they just get it off their chest straight away um, and that's really really positive but equally there are just as many people who turn up and it just takes time you know, so they let a little bit go but it's they're quite reticent to let go Maybe it takes time to build the therapeutic relationship until they are prepared to feel that they can share, you know, they feel safe or they feel they don't feel judged. Um, so some people are more circumspect, other people are not. So the way that people react varies, I think, massively. I think women are much more likely to share earlier than men. Men are much, much more reticent to share, but that isn't always the case. Mm. Yeah, what's the, um, in terms of like differences between men and women, because I know um, we tend to, I don't know, I guess um, maybe the stereotype of like women are more emotional, so they are able to talk about their feelings more. I think men for a long time, it's been, you know, they're more like the su suppressors, you know, if it's not bleeding, it's not hurt. <laughs> what's the, like, do you notice a big difference in terms of your 
like men and women? Yeah, I think on a level, women are much more likely to share in their friendship groups. So they tend to have stronger support networks. So they've certainly shared aspects of what they're going to talk about in therapy, perhaps with a few trusted friends. Um, men typically do less of that. So they might hang out with groups of guys and go for beer after work and stuff, but they don't talk about feelings and they certainly don't talk about mental health. So that tends to be, it's quite often the first time they've ever talked about this stuff for them in the, in the therapy session. It will be, this is the first time I've mentioned this. So I've not mentioned this to friends, I've not mentioned this to family and quite often not mentioned it to loved ones. Right. Why, why is that though? I think it's sociological, isn't it? I think it's the way that men and women are brought up differently. Um, men are often brought up and told, you know, boys don't cry, and so they are taught to hide their emotions. Mm. And I think it's quite difficult then in later life to decide to counteract everything they've been taught about, you know, stiff upper look, look sorry, stiff upper lip, and putting on a brave face to suddenly, I'm going to start sharing my emotions. But just to like really make it clear talking you know any kind of like therapeutic activity that can that benefits everyone right men women mm. that you've talked about stuff before or not i wonder if um you know i i talk about this a lot in my personal life i feel like um you know men are definitely underserved in a lot of ways i think uh i think we don't talk enough about how men today can struggle with things like mental health um, and I've noticed um, more and more, I know they've been around for a long time, but like men groups, mm. things like that. What do you think of that? Men groups think are amazing. Yeah. Um, I've got clients that go and I think they serve two purposes. I think they serve a really great purpose that people actually can just go and talk in a group where they don't feel judged because the environment is that everybody else has got something to share. I think people often go along probably don't speak for the first couple of weeks but then when they hear everybody else they think actually this is okay I can join in but the other thing I pick up is people just love that environment so even though they might have then gotten something from the process they like to still go along because actually they feel like they can be of help to other people mm, yeah, right. so they recognize that I was once that person that came along here and felt really vulnerable and it was really scary but actually, if I can be part of helping somebody else now, that actually helps my therapy. So it becomes quite a sort of cyclical process, if you like. Yeah. So I really, really like that. That's very important, isn't it? Because like, like you were saying, it's a part of that cycle. There's helping yourself just very, I mean, you know, selfishly, but also helping yourself through helping others. How it allows you almost like an, uh, the ability to, to step in as your own example to look up to, right? And really embody that for somebody else. And then, I mean, that obviously gives you a boost. Yeah, there's sort of a sense of, you get a lot of alcoholics, don't you, who go to AA meetings and 10 years after they're dry, they still go into AA meetings because A, they want to help, but I think it kind of reinforces stuff for them. Mm still good therapy sort of 10 years on if you like what's um i mean would it be would you say that it's something that you recommend 
complementary to therapy or would you say that these little moments like joining a men's group or you know joining um a group where you can find a, a sense of community or you know for lack of a better word brotherhood for men um you know sisterhood for women or anything else um that can also just start having an impact on helping you feel a little bit more balanced and supported no i'd probably say there's two things i think there's one it's always good to talk about anything isn't it mental health included but it's always good to talk but it's also good to break down that stigma about how other people react when you talk about your mental health so i get quite a lot of clients who'll come along and they'll build the confidence to talk to me about their mental health but then they'll start to talk about what would happen if i talked to my partner about this or what if mm. i talked to my parents about this and they quite often start from a place which is, I couldn't ever do that, that's just not something that's conceivable, to the point where they actually build the confidence to do it. And I'd say 99 times out of 100 when they do do it, they're amazed by how it's received. It's sort of, you know, they get empathy back and actually everyone's fine with it. But they start from a place which is, people just won't get this or people will react really badly to it. But we do find, and this was as much as we can spread this message when we talk about mental health people are okay with it I'm thinking about something one of my uh, line managers back in my agency days Niall uh, would always remind me is like you know don't suffer in silence and I think that that's something we we tend to do without even realizing we like we don't want to bother people i mean let I mean, forget the judgment for a second we don't want to be a burden i hear that a lot people don't want to burden somebody else with their problems so oh, you're going through a lot worse right now i didn't want to burden you what's the yeah i guess like it's like that would aggravate the problem wouldn't it yeah so i think people come across it from come on several levels don't they so I don't want to share this because the other person can't handle it or I want to protect them. Mm. Yeah, so there's that caring aspect of it. That, but that can be projection, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's also that I don't want to share this because people will see me differently. But then I think there's this whole naive thing about are we really that good that we could be in a relationship with somebody, have a deep mental health issue and not share that and not think the other person doesn't know? You can't take a whole chunk of your personality and hide that and expect the other person not to be able to see it you know we're just not that good at acting are we right you know it's it's like when somebody does eventually have that conversation that says you know i suffer from this the other person goes yeah whatever because they already know mm. but it's just become this unspoken thing in the relationship like um like they're waiting for you to bring it up first sometimes because yeah, it's intrusive for them to mention it but they absolutely know something's going on. Well, why wouldn't they? Mm. There is some, um, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm just, I'm thinking about how, you know, we think about how to be a supportive friend, how to be a supportive partner, how to be a supportive, um, you know, colleague, family member, what have you. And when you're in that, when you're the one sitting in the place where you're struggling, you don't want to be a burden on other people. Um, I can't remember who said this. I, I watched this this talk recently about mental health and reaching out. 
and it was sharing the perspective that you have to remember that people that love you want the opportunity to love you and if it's not for yourself do it for them don't don't prevent them don't take away the opportunity for them to support you sometimes you're gonna um be able to create even more connection and more relief in a relationship when you're sharing hey i'm not doing well and i need support i need help most if you're really thinking about it most of the time like if you just put yourself in the shoes of like if your friend comes to you that you love and is telling you something's going on you're like thank you for telling me i'm so happy to be there for you like the, i feel very privileged that you um that you're 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 allowing me to be there for you like that's a wonderful gift that you're giving me so i think sometimes like i love that perspective because it's something to remind ourselves that when we're struggling we have to remember that the people who love us um you're i mean you're doing a disservice to yourself by not reaching out but you're also doing a disservice to them because they likely would love the opportunity to support you and be there it's a lot less burdensome than when how we imagine our struggles yeah. to be. I think we sometimes have that conversation with people where they say, um, I don't share this particular thing with friends or family or whatever. And I sometimes say to them, but if it was the other way around, how would you feel if your friend didn't tell you this or tell you that? And they say, well, it would be awful because they're denying me the opportunity to help. But that's what you're doing to mm -hmm. them. It's back to the, like, you know, where we so easily preach, but we have a hard time putting in practice things that, you know, it's kind of like, you know, they say um, how to talk to yourself, talk to yourself like you would talk to your friend. We tend to be a lot more negative to ourselves than we ever would to somebody that we love. Yeah, that voice in our head is the nastiest voice we know, isn't it? You mm. know, when we, we have lots of conversations with ourselves that go, you know, pull yourself together, just get on with it. But if a friend asked us for advice in the same situation, we would never say that to them, would we? No. We would say, I'll oh, take a minute, it's okay. We'd be very, very caring and kind, wouldn't we? But we don't talk to ourselves like that. Mm. I, I, sometimes like, I, I struggle a lot with, um, with how to support um, you know, people who are maybe too proud or like just not used to or uncomfortable at the idea of like talking about their struggles and their challenges you know I'm thinking of let's say um, I've had this conversation so many times with my stepdad who's like very old school and you know he'll joke a lot about if it's not bleeding it ain't hurt um, so he's very traditional in that sense and um, you know he's the first person that you can come to when it comes to um, needing support, if you need help, he's always going to be there and be, in, uh, you know, be a shoulder to cry on, lend an ear, and really listen. But I think he's the last person to like almost do himself that kindness too in reaching out and um, talking about what he goes through. Because again, there's a lot of pride. Um, you want to, especially if you consider yourself like the leader of a family unit, like you want to be that strong you want to be that strong person so it, it's kind of like we have this association that admitting your struggles is a sign of weakness do you think that's like 
know that's a very old school way to think, but do you think that's still something that manifests today in like our younger generation too? Perhaps less so in younger generations, but still aspects of it, isn't there? I think we create roles for ourselves in society. We create roles for ourselves within families, don't we? We create roles for ourselves within friendship groups. And we become a particular type of person. And you know what you're describing there is we, we create this role where we're there for other people, but we've created this image of we're big and strong and we mm -hmm. don't need any help. Yeah, we're just um, not here for ourselves. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's where I think the things that you've talked about, things like men's groups are good because they change that dynamic completely, mm. don't they? It's all bets are off and actually we can all share here. But sometimes around our loved ones and our friends and our family, we've created this image that we are impregnable and it's then quite difficult in that environment to, to, to take any help or even expose any kind of vulnerability, isn't it? Mm. Because we see vulnerability as a, a weakness, don't we? We Do don't see it as a strength. No, but it is actually, I think, I mean, I feel like in theory, people do say how, you know, showing your vulnerable side shows a, is a great testament to the strength of character because, you know, that is part of being human. Um, and yeah, I think there's something that's, I really respect people who can speak on their own challenges and still saying, look, and, and here I am though, still showing up for myself and showing up for others and I'm going through shit and it's not perfect and you know that's that's kind of you know I think those those are great leaders I'm seeing that more and more especially in like a business world too where you have CEOs and you know leaders of big companies who are coming out and they are huge advocates of mental health and I think it's great to see these examples of people who are showing a lot of strength in admitting mm. that you know, you're not always strong 24-7. Like, that's okay. It's not, you know. But, anyways. Yeah, but it doesn't go, does it, with the construct previously of what chief execs and people look like. They always had to be big and strong and powerful and, like you say, impregnable. But actually, they're all human beings and actually they've always had their vulnerabilities. They've just not displayed that because it wasn't seen as part of what good leadership looked like. Mm. Whereas you're right, it's starting to change that now, isn't it? That leadership is about being vulnerable. Leadership is about diversity and difference, isn't it? Mm. So there's a sort of different focus, I suppose, as time goes by. I really liked, um, I, you know, I've uh, obviously, you know, we've been working together for like the last nine, 10 months. And in, in my life, I've, you know, I've, I've, in, I've obviously I've, done my own therapy programs and I've interacted and uh, worked with a lot of other therapists mostly women I liked having you on because you know you're you're a man who you know you stand tall you stand strong and you're able to talk about this stuff you know I think I think again we have this association that mental health talking about feelings it's all it's just so women centric and just I think shifting mm. a little bit the how we were represent like who we're choosing as representatives of like leaders in mental health um, I think is really important because you know mental health struggles ups and downs this is something that everybody can relate to and I think seeing somebody 
that you can look up to or that looks a little bit more like you or that's in a similar industry as you, I think it's really important. It, it helps break down those barriers that we have. I don't know. Or I, I think like maybe it's like a marketing thing too. I don't know. Like in my head, I'm like, I'm seeing men's group, which again, I'm like a huge fan of. I think is a great thing. Um, I wonder if it's that it's just not marketed as therapy that just makes it more comfortable. You know, because it's not mm. therapy group. It's not men's therapy. It's men group. It's brotherhood, you know. And it's almost like injected in that are like therapeutic moments, therapeutic opportunities. Yeah, it's interesting you said the word marketing. I think there's a massive difference between a psychotherapist and a counselor, isn't there? I think the right. counselor feels softer. I think it's it's easy for people because you go by both though right? yeah but I would always say counsellor first I mm. think um, definitely I think amongst the therapy groups there are a lot more female therapists than, than male I don't know what the percentages are but I say it's probably in the realms of like 90-10 oh, okay wow that's extreme. significant yeah, yeah. for my experiences um, certainly when I set up my practice my assumption wrongly was that I would get a lot of male clients because mm. males would be attracted to males and to some extent that's true but I get an awful lot of female clients as well and if I ever ask them you know why have you chosen a male counsellor it's interesting they very often say because I've got loads of girlfriends that I talk to and I was really interested in the male perspective interesting because I don't typically get that um, but there probably is a need for more male counsellors out there because I suspect the trend over time will be you know, we talked about this earlier, didn't we, that the prevalence of um, mental health issues is, is almost double in females as it is in males in this, the official statistics. But we suspect that's not true. It's just that males aren't presenting in as big a numbers right mm. now. And But we kind of hope that trend will, will change. Right. And over the next you know, 10, 20 years, we will see probably as many men present for therapy as we do females. Mm. And, you know, if somebody is um, feels like therapy is a bit too much of a jump, uh, I hear we're hearing a lot of, um, what's it, uh, life coaches. Life coach, you know, like you were saying, counselor sometimes is a bit softer life coach. I mean, I guess has a very similar impact or? Hard to say because I'm not a life coach, but I think... I think in the commoditized world that we live in, people like instant solutions, don't they? And I think there's got to be some realistic aspirations about how therapy helps you. You know, if you've been battling with something for um, the last 20 years, it's not really realistic to come along for a therapy session and think, well, three sessions of this and I'm going to yeah, be fine. Yeah, <laughs> That's just not going to happen. Um, I think quite often people reach out to coaching because they're looking to address a specific issue. So I'm not happy at work, or I'm not getting promoted, or I don't know, my interpersonal relationships in, in work are perhaps not what I would want them to be. And so that's a fix. Mm -hmm. But quite often behind that, I think quite often there are deeper issues. Um, you know, I see lots of people that come to me and they have work-related issues, but then they feel trapped. Right. You know, they might feel that, you know, I'm in a profession, I've done that profession for 20 years, I earn quite a lot of money, 
but I don't like it, I don't enjoy it, it doesn't do anything for me, it's making me depressed, but I don't feel I've got any alternatives because this is what I do. Uh, if I was to give this up and go and do something else, I'd perhaps earn a third of what I earn right now, and I have a mortgage and I have a family. So I get a lot of people who feel very, very trapped. Mm. And how, I mean, what's the, I mean, how do you, how do you help that? Ultimately, they need to go through a process of actually perspective because, you know, you might be working as an accountant and there are still 101 other things that you can do. So it's about how much appetite you have for change. Mm. Um, but I don't think it's sustainable, is it? If you're 40 years of age and you're doing something that you really do dislike, can you really dig in until you're 65 and do that for another 25 years? Yeah. I think it's about understanding that that's not something that's an option. I mean, shit, that's that's probably even more depressing than currently being in a depressing job is to... The prospect of it for the next 25 this, years. Yeah. yeah, it's just unthinkable. Mm. And so that's quite a long process to change people's perspective and start to get them to explore what are the other options because there yeah. has to be another option. I know we talk about quick fixes in our society from, you know, just the reality that we're in a very... Um, we live in a We live in a world where, like, a lot of things are very easily accessible you know where you know we live for instant gratification i'm i i'm sure that's also one of the reasons why prescribed medication is the is the only prescribed method to address anxiety and depression a lot of times i mean I, i'm not too familiar how it is in the uk but i know back home in north america that's kind of usually like the go-to it's kind of like well just take these pills for the rest of your life and you'll be fine um, that's just, ma it's fixing the symptoms. It's like not fixing the, the root cause, re like, you know, setting new patterns, better, better, um, better systems, better behaviors, better habits. Um, but I guess like what's like, I guess there's no real window of time to start seeing the benefits of talk therapy. Or would you say like people usually after a couple of sessions, I'm sure it's not a one-and-done thing, but... I think it varies massively. I think I think the very experience of turning up the first time and just letting everything go mm. can have a massive impact on some people. Obviously, as I've said, some people don't share that quickly. Um, I think some people go through therapy and make some really sustainable changes to their lives. So they might change their job, they might change their relationship, they might change their friendship network. The more change they make, I think the more sustainable the solution very often. Mm. I think the trap that some people fall into is they have an underlying reason why they're unhappy, they have an underlying reason that's impacting their mental health. They come for therapy, they talk about it, but they don't really make changes in their lives. So they might take some time out from work, but then they go back to work and they go back to work in 70, 80 hours a week and then it's not surprising that the changes aren't sustained. They kind of end up going back to where to where they were. So there's no simple answer to that question. I think if you come into therapy or and, and you try to address your mental health issues, the more changes you make typically, the more likely it is to be sustained. I guess that's where it plays nicely when they say, you know, therapy is work. It, sure, sometimes I guess it can feel very heavy, sometimes not necessarily, but it it's awareness is one thing but and I can't remember 
where I got this quote from, but, you know, awareness without changed behavior is just manipulation. You can, uh, you can say, I'm aware, I know, I know, I know, but like at the end of the day, if you just don't really do anything about it, then you're, you're kind of kidding yourself and sustaining a system that's just not helpful or sustainable. I think it's quite similar, isn't it, to if you were hugely overweight and you decide to go to Slimming World or whatever it's called for 20 weeks and you lose an awful lot of weight, but then at the end of those 20 weeks you just go back to the diet you were on prior to joining Slimming World, well, your weight's going to go back to where it was, isn't it? Mm. And I think the therapeutic, therapeutic journey is quite similar. If you're going to make some changes, you've got to sustain those changes and those changes, if you continue to, to work on them and evolve them, they will serve you well. But if you just go back to whatever you did prior to seeking therapy, well, you'll just get the same answers, won't you? Mm. So it has to be a journey of discovery, I think, for most people. I think it's really helpful to, I guess, hear it from the horse's mouth or, you know, kind of be able to reveal a bit of the behind the scenes of what really goes on, like what therapy is really like. Um, I appreciate that you are very focused on like humanizing the process too. It's not your sort of sterile therapy consult that I think a lot of people sort of imagine. Um, I have a couple of questions if you're good to answer them just to like demystify um, a little bit what goes on behind the scenes. So therapists are humans too. You say it many times. I think you even say it in your on your website. Like your own personal experiences have helped you help other people. Mm -hmm. um, is it so? I mean, I guess it wouldn't be uncommon for a therapist to have their own therapist because you have your own things to talk about, right? Mm -hmm. And to offload. So, I think all yes, I think it's true to say all all therapists that actively practice yeah are in therapy. Yeah. Because you kind of need to have that counterbalance. Mm. So we don't just... you got to practice what you preach too. Practice what you preach. Yeah. But you've also got to have that counterbalance to kind of go away and talk about some stuff because clearly there are things that we experience in that therapeutic room that mm -hmm. impact us too. Yeah. So yeah, we are always in therapy and we always talk to somebody. Yeah. So we have our own sort of supervisory techniques where we talk about A, our own issues that might be coming up, but we also then anonymously talk about particular cases sometimes what might be concerning us or we just need to kind of bounce that stuff off other people yeah keeps it kosher and um i've heard this many times before where people just say oh you know your therapist is is paid to care they're paid to listen like you know it's it's a little fake what would you say to that um i think it's easy to say that but i think I think when you work with somebody in that environment, I think you do develop quite a close bond with them very, very quickly. I think it'd be wrong to say that you always love all your clients because sometimes working with your clients can be really challenging and it can be really, really difficult. Um, but no, I wouldn't ever say, I've never seen examples of it, I've never felt it, that it's felt fake in any way. If it sort of started to feel like that, I think it's the right thing to do is to then break with that client and refer them kind mm. of on to somebody else. And so, in terms of like, because we hear that a lot, like, you know, finding the right therapist, the, um, the right uh, chemistry, you know, depending on whatever the 
whatever serves to that person in the moment is is it is it easy would you say to find a you know a therapist that you're matched or a counselor that you're matched with that works um does it take a few times like what's that what's that process like on average would you say for people i think it's like any matching process isn't it i think it's a trial and error thing Mm -hmm. but i always say to people let's have one conversation let's see if it works if it doesn't work for you it doesn't work for me let's have a really open and honest conversation about it you usually but have like a free consultation yeah, or something free, like a 15 minute. Yeah, free session up front. Yeah. But, but also I always say to clients, you know, if you don't feel comfortable with the therapist you've got, change it. Mm, right. You know, don't settle until you've found something that where you feel really comfortable or it really works for mm. you. Because you know, you... There's not a choice of one out there. Just try a few until it feels right. Yeah. So would you say that most of the time when people say, oh, you know, like I, I don't, I don't, you know, uh, mesh well with my therapist, or I don't know, I don't know if it's worked for me. I, it, it could be also a case of it's just like, it's just not the right match. Because every therapist has their own approach or style, right? Yeah, it's a dynamic situation, mm-hmm. isn't it? We've all got different styles. We all bond with people in slightly different ways. If a therapeutic relationship doesn't feel really safe or you don't feel really comfortable, I'd always say to somebody, change it. Mm don't try and force it because you've signed up with this person and you feel obligated to go along no don't do that change it Mm. okay well that's really good because I think it can feel a bit discouraged when somebody uh you know gathers all their courage for that first hard step of like reaching out and then the first counselor you connect with just a bit of a dud and then you think oh okay like it's not for me so yeah. it's it would be just to like try a couple like have conversations with a couple of counselors and like you might find a a good a good match and it doesn't need to be personalized does it you know some clients don't match with a counselor some counselors don't match with the client that's the nature of human interaction isn't mm. it it doesn't make a, a bad client or a bad therapist it's just not a great match well you know what be grown up about it and just change it mm. and so obviously we are very accustomed Again, TV, movies, uh, you know, in person, one-on-one, in real life, the couch, the chair. But actually now what we're seeing more and more is like virtual um, therapy. Do you feel like that? I mean, what do you think of that? Do you feel like it it provides very similar benefits? Are there pros or cons? Like, I think it's interesting. I think prior to the pandemic, where I think all the counselling I'd done up until that point had been face-to-face, I probably would have been a critic and would have said things like, it'd be really hard to get a deep, meaningful therapeutic relationship through a computer. Yeah. Um, Then there was a period of time during the pandemic when that was all we could do. Mm. And I think now, I think I'd still say I would prefer face-to-face therapy. I think it probably is better. But I do think... Why? I think you just get a more of a feel for the person. I think it's slightly, um, slightly more engaging. But I still, but I would say is that online counselling is a thousand times better than I ever thought it would be. Really? Yeah, I think, and it probably is the way forward. And I think there's another unique one, which is I've had a couple of clients who are incredibly nervous about the process, and they found that actually not having the camera on and it just being a voice thing yeah has really really helped interesting okay because my um 
So my stepmom is like a she's a she's a therapist, a psychiatrist, and you know she struggled with this like virtual thing, pros and cons. Mm. And she um, one of her requirements though is to always have the camera on. I think because you can uh, read body language and different cues, which you know because we uh, what is it like we communicate? Ninety percent of how we communicate is nonverbal. Yeah. Um, but I guess like that's a very good entry point for somebody who's I don't know more shy or. Yeah, so where we've not had the camera on has never been at my request, it's been at the client's request. But if that's what the client wants, then who am I to say, you've got to turn your camera mm. on? So if they want that, if that anonymity kind of helps a little bit, then what's wrong with that? Because mm. I often think, well, is that a choice between them having therapy and not having therapy? Mm. So Yeah, that's true. Is it ideal? Probably not. But if it works for a client, then that's fine. Step in the right direction. Yeah. So how is, is then... Uh, just I'd love you to expand on how you found that online or virtual therapy has been 10 times better than you imagined what are the like what's kind of changed your opinion about it it's just way more engaging than I thought it would be yeah I thought it would be a bit cold mm -hmm. but it's actually much warmer than I thought it would be and I suppose it's increased the pool of matches hasn't it between client and therapist because when we were doing face to face it was like you know you live in this particular community and there were right. this many therapists whereas actually if you go onto the various therapy directories right now you've got your choice of thousands of of, of different therapists mm. so it gives you much more choice I suppose mm. um, and the technology you know things like Zoom and Teams kind of works really really well mm, that's good so um, last question for you and one of the, I think one of the things that people have a bit of a hard time wrapping their heads around is this idea that um, connecting with a counselor, uh, engaging with a therapist is very difficult to do financially. What are, obviously I, I know it's not, not free most of the time, but like what are the things that you would suggest to people who might be worried about that, might be interested, but they are just, it's, I probably can't afford it. What's the? The first thing I would say is have a conversation with your counselor. So although they might publish rates that they charge, etc., talk to them and talk to them about your personal circumstances because they will offer concessions. They will do kind of um, different pricing structures depending on whether you're not waged Okay. or whether um, you're a student or whatever. And so, this is directly with a counsellor? Yeah, you don't have to go through a certain no, program talk, or talk the to, NHS? Talk, talk to the therapist if you want to go private. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, go to your GP. GP can refer you through, I think it's called Talking Therapy now, the, the NHS system. It used to be called IAPT. Um, quite a long waiting list depending upon the area. But again, there is free counselling available. There is a waiting list. But the NHS does offer talking therapists these mm -hmm. days. So nobody should be sitting there saying, well, I can't get into therapy because I can't afford. Because mm -hmm. actually there are still options. But you need to talk to your GP or talk to a therapist. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying every therapist will offer concessions, but most do. Right. So basically for people not to be shy about being very upfront about what they can't or can afford and just asking there's no there's no judgment no and right? don't and don't use yeah. finances as yet another excuse not to engage mm. in therapy right because that is a door that we can knock down right okay well that's good to know okay. 
Is there, um, is there anything else? I know we've covered a lot of ground um, and obviously we've got a lot more conversations uh, coming together that dive into some topics a little bit more deeper, but is there anything else that, um, just for people that are like generally being um, initiated to this kind of conversation, is there anything that you'd like to leave us with as a takeaway, as a key things to remember to consider? Um, nothing greatly other than I would say, don't be shy, don't be shy, don't be scared to talk to other people. People are a lot more ac accepting and understanding than you think you're going to be. Um, don't suffer alone, don't suffer in silence. The overwhelming majority of us have some sort of mental issues going on up there. And actually, we might often feel there's a perception out there that we're the only ones and nobody else does. But I can absolutely assure people that everybody's got mental health issues. So actually, be brave and share because actually it does bring huge rewards. Mm. And just like the relief of not holding this secret alone, not suffering alone, I think is key. Yeah, there's a huge release of actually just being able to be you yeah and and not pretending to be okay all the time because that in itself becomes quite burdensome mm. that's great i think it's good food for thought i'll be thinking about this chat okay thank you thank you so much for joining us and uh obviously we're um excited to have you again at our table to uh keep this conversation going because again talking is key right as we all learned today um so again nigel thank you so much um obviously anybody that might be interested in your work can look you up you have a website you're on linkedin yeah you're on instagram you're everywhere <laughs> put that on the bottom of the screen yeah exactly oh well we'll be able to pop it up in editing so thank you so much thank you it's a pleasure thank you mm -hmm.